0: At this point in our second worship service, I want to draw your attention to the the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. You know, this morning um, we looked at Matthew's, um, as I said, simple and unadorned account of the uh, birth of Jesus Christ. And now we find a similar brief account from the Gospel of Luke. So we get another Gospel writer's perspective, and it's an interesting Perspective. So I want to draw your attention to that now. Luke chapter 2, we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Because, and I want us just to, to focus, this is more of a meditation than it is, maybe what we call a as we normally experience on a Sunday, a standard sermon. But so I want to just focus and meditate with you on that last phrase where it says, there is no place for them in the end. Or as some of the uh, older translations put it, there is was, there was no room for them uh, in the end. No room, no room in Bethlehem. No room for Bethlehem. And, you know, the Bethlehem, the town, literally meaning house of bread, Reminds me of, of something in the Bible from, from the Old Testament. You know, it's very interesting that um, if, if you grew up with the Bible, you'll know that the whole Old Testament is what we call preparatory. It prepares the way for the coming of Jesus. For centuries, God's people are waiting for Jesus, for the Messiah to come. And if, if you do a study of the Old Testament, first two-thirds of the Bible, you will see that there are over 200 prophecies or predictions of the coming of Jesus Christ. That's not a few. And what you find is as you move in the Old Testament, those prophecies, those predictions become clearer, more extensive, more detailed. And I think of this one in particular from Micah 5, verse 2, where we read, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And so what this passage tells us is that not only is the Messiah to come, but actually he is going to come forth from the house of bread as the bread of life. Jesus is going to come forth from this little town of Bethlehem. So here's the thing I want you to think about. You have all these Old Testament texts, pointing forward to Jesus. We know that He's going to be born in Bethlehem. We know the weight of all of these things. and yet and yet and, and also this, at the time of Jesus, actually among the Jews, Messianic expectations were running very high. So you put all these things together. and the people of God should, should have been anticipating and preparing for the arrival of the Messiah Jesus in Bethlehem, And yet, the interesting thing is, and the very sad thing is, that nobody was looking for him. Because if they were looking for him, and if they were preparing for him, they would have made room for him. But nobody made room. So that by the time Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem, with Mary great with child... Right when they needed a place, there was no place for them. I think that's one of the saddest statements in all of the Bible, isn't it? No room for the Messiah. Now, actually, um, our, our passage begins, I want to say just a few things before we get to that last phrase. The passage begins with a very reputable and very important figure, Caesar Augustus, who was in the empire our emperor of the great Roman Empire. And according to the passage, the great Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the then known world of, of the Roman Empire. This was not a small thing. This was a huge undertaking. And it was probably, although the text doesn't say, it was probably to determine how many people there were to be taxed, or maybe just generally to understand the population of the Roman Empire. We don't know what was behind it, but what we do know is that it required Joseph to go to the hometown of his lineage, of his upbringing, which was Bethlehem, and it required Joseph to take his wife, Mary, who was great with child at that point, and go to Bethlehem in order to be registered for that census, because everybody had to go to their hometown to do that. Now, what we need to understand, and again, the text doesn't say this, but we need to understand that that. that that the travels of Joseph to Bethlehem with Mary was, the distance was about, and bear with me, because every once in a while I reveal that I grew up in the States, but I don't know what it is in kilometers exactly, but 120 miles. Now, 120 miles is, is, is a great distance back then, right? 120 miles is really nothing for us today. We can get in the car, and we can get there under two hours very easily. But this is a multi-day trip, so I want you to think about this You got Joseph, he's got a very pregnant wife. Who knows how she's feeling and how exactly far along she is, but she's quite far along, probably very likely in her third trimester, right? And so she's great with child, and they have to travel. How they travel exactly, we don't know, but what we do know is they had to travel that distance, Mary probably being very uncomfortable, and also we need to understand it was not great weather likely. It's the rainy season in the Middle East. Okay, so you put that all together, and you think about how, in your trips over the summer, over the last few years, you know how you've been traveling that car for multi hours, right? And you finally get to your destination, and you can't wait to get to your hotel or wherever you're staying, or your, you know, Airbnb, or you know, wherever you're going, right? And imagine going all that distance and realizing that when you, you get to the town or you get to the place where you're going, there's, just, there's no vacancy, so you, you can't get in, and maybe you didn't reserve it or whatever. I mean, that's a bad feeling. And so it was for Joseph and Mary. I mean, this is his own hometown. So he's crowded out of his own hometown with his wife, who's ready to give birth. And you think, poor Mary, how she, how she must have struggled. Um at that point. Must not have been very easy for her, but again the text doesn't really say anything about that. Only that, and then there's that phrase that hits us, there is no place for them in the inn. Now, you know, um, when you and I think about an inn, um, sometimes maybe we think of like a European hostel, or maybe we think about a hotel of some kind, but you have to kind of get get that out of your mind um, don't even think in terms of, of, of terms of a bed and breakfast. Uh, think in terms of this. You have a number of Jewish homes. Remember, Bethlehem is a very small town, and so a lot of uh, Jewish homes had one room that was reserved for guests, maybe their relatives, or maybe paid guests who came from out of town for whatever reason. And oftentimes what they would do is they would have that in the front of the house. But by the time that Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem, there were no rooms like that available. They were all taken up because everybody's coming to Bethlehem to take that census. So the, the question is then, there's so much in this little story that's, that's not told us. You know, it doesn't explain this all, but, but it, it creates all kinds of questions like, well, then where did Joseph and Mary stay? And, and where actually was Jesus born? And you know, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well you think of those Christmas cards, or you think as you're walking through your neighborhood, or maybe you have one of these, like a nativity scene, right? And you got this simple structure with a roof, and then you got animals around, and you got Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. So the 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 typical understanding that Jesus is born in a stable. Maybe. Maybe. All we know is that there weren't any rooms available in homes, but perhaps, and this is where kind of historians go with this perhaps what would happen is that Mary and Joseph actually found a crude back room somewhere, so far back that it consisted of what you sometimes find in Bethlehem are some crude limestone caves in the back of properties where people would have animals, because the caves would, during the rainy season, protect the animals. Or maybe it was a crude structure like a stable. Jesus could have been born in that. But there are are different traditions in that. Some Christian traditions say he was born in a cave. Some in a stable. We we just don't know exactly. But but Luke gives us kind of a clue to that. Where he says when Jesus finally came on the scene, when Jesus was born, he, he mentions two things. One, Jesus was wrapped in strips of cloth, which was common at that time, because for those of you, parents of young children, right? And we have we have six grand, and I have six grandchildren now, and so we find that when we get pictures of our grandkids, they, they they're all wrapped up. You know, almost like mummies. You know, and they, and the kids just sitting there, and just you know, in seventh heaven, just loving that. Well, it's, it, that's common. So Jesus is wrapped in these strips of cloth, but also we're told that he was he was placed in a in a manger. And and kids, that means he was placed in a feeding trough, a feeding trough for animals. So animals would eat out of that. And that's all that was available. So that's why maybe he was in the stable or he was with animals in a cave or what have you. But the point is, is while we don't know exactly where Jesus was born, we do know that he was born in very humble circumstances. And he was born in obscurity. That means no one seemed to know the significance of the rival of Jesus on the scene. And thus, that's why we have that final phrase of this passage, that there was no room for them in the end, because people were not preparing for him. They were not making room for him. And, and we could put it this way, Jesus came for his own, as the Gospel John says, but his own received him not, in their ignorance. And so in a sense, what they did is they they crowded Jesus out, they crowded him out of Bethlehem, and and then when you step back from this and you examine the life of Jesus, you go, you know what, it's all beginning, isn't it? This is characteristic of the whole of Jesus' life. Jesus here in this passage is crowded out out of Bethlehem, there's no room for them in an inn, no room anywhere. And then later on, they will be pushed out of Bethlehem to the land of Egypt, as I mentioned this morning, because wicked Queen, uh, King Herod was seeking to kill the baby Jesus. He did that like the idea of a rival king, a satanic attempt to extinguish the Christ. So he's crowded out of Bethlehem. Later on, when Jesus begins his ministry, do you remember where he, he preached his first sermon? It was in Nazareth, his own hometown. But we find that Jesus is then crowded out of Nazareth, because they were offended at his preaching. And then finally, still later, at the end of his life and ministry, Jesus is crowded out of the capital of Jerusalem. As he, the Bible tells us, was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. In the end, God's people, our ancestors, joined hands with the government, with the Roman government, in putting their own Messiah to death. You cannot experience a greater depth of being pushed out and being crowded out than that. So when we look at a passage like this, someone reading this, you and I or anyone who's even cracking open the Bible for the first time have to ask themselves the question. And our passage, I think, places this plea before us, or at least this question, I should say, and that is this. Will we do the same thing? Will we join hands with others in crowding out the Christ? Or, to put it another way, are we, are we ourselves here this morning willing to make really genuinely room for Him? Room for Him. You know, um, there are many people like the people of of Bethlehem. There are many people who could hear the Christmas story, as I've described it uh, in the first service this morning and now from Luke chapter two, they hear it. And you know, the the whole of the Christmas story and the whole of the Christmas season um, is traditionally by a lot of people, just kind of what I call sentimentalized. And you know, people, people like the Christmas season, they like the songs, they like the Christmas trees, they like the lights on the home, they like the nativity scenes, they like how the Christmas season makes them feel. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the world who really fail to grapple with what, but what, what is it all about? You know, it's interesting, I think it was last week... Where um, I, I received a story on the news about the first time that, and, and I'm not, I think there's something significant. The first time where the Charlie Brown Christmas came out, that cartoon. And that, that cartoon came out in 1965, a number of years ago, didn't have all the animation techniques that we have today. And the whole theme of the Charlie Brown Christmas is that that there are many people who just, all the kids are wondering, but really, what is Christmas all about? That's what they're asking. What is Christmas all about? And finally, there's that little kid, Linus, who gets up and he says, this is what Christmas is all about. And he gets up to a microphone and he recites from memory this passage, and more than just this, from Luke chapter two. It's the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And when he's done, Linus says, and this is what Christmas is all about. It's like, Wow. Would you ever find that today? I don't think so. I mean, think about This is on national TV. And he's reading the Christmas account from the Bible. And he's saying to the audience in both the U.S. and Canada who are watching, you know what? This is what Christmas is all about. You would not find that today. And thus, increasingly, more and more people are going, well, what is this Christmas all about? Because I do like the season. And the answer is... It's about the text, it's about Jesus Christ coming into the world. It's about Jesus Christ coming into the world. And when, when, people, when people begin to really grapple with what the Christmas story is all about, in a sense what they are doing is they're moving from having Jesus reserved for a back room way over here and Jesus starts moving more and more to, to the front room of their lives. And when that happens, when that happens, sometimes what happens in their lives is people begin to grapple and actually believe what the Bible says about the Christmas account. There's a change that takes place that is sometimes very quick and very dramatic and sometimes just very kind of quiet and gradual. Like, for instance... um, uh, many of us are familiar with the, the great English writer C.S. Lewis. You know, there was a time where in his life, for a number of years in his life, especially throughout his 20s, he was, um, he was an atheist. He just does not, did not believe in God. And then by God's grace, he began to shift. He went from atheism to agnosticism to what we just call theism. That is A, that is, and a lot of times, people move in this direction. They believe in a God, but they're not sure who that God is. And then by reading the Bible and talking with other Christians, he began to embrace what we call Christian theism, that is, the belief in the Christian God, the belief in Christ himself. And it was a very, very gradual thing. So in a sense, he began in a back room, but by the grace of God, he shifted over more and more to the living room. And then he left the living room, and he came to the front room, and it is there where he, unlike the people of Bethlehem and many people today, where he made room for the Christ. My friends, the plea of the moment is simply this. And I think the text really begs this question. Are we really making room for Jesus? I know that sounds very simple, but are, are, are we making room? Have we made room for Jesus? And the plea of the text is not just to ask that question, but to make it a reality, make room for the Christ. And maybe you say, well, you know what? I have already done that. I've already made room for Christ. Then the text reminds us and prompts us to stretch that heart of ours where we have made room for Christ and create even greater space for Him. And who of us here can say that we cannot create greater space for the Christ in our lives, making room for him in a way that the people of Bethlehem never did. Christmas is a time for reflection, but Christmas is a time of renewal and spiritual expansion as well, and that's what the Lord calls us to. And let me just add this. If you have never made room in your hearts for Christ, ask yourself these questions. Like, why is that? Why is it? Is is it... Is it because I'm afraid? Is it because I still have a whole lot of questions? Is it because of pride? What is it? What is it? Whatever the case is, God on this day says, you don't have to have all your questions answered at this point. Lay them aside for now. Read the story. Absorb what is preached. Listen to the Christmas story and be touched by it, and embrace it, and say, "This is not only something perplexing and mysterious, but it also something as we saw this morning That's extremely necessary, and ultimately beautiful." May the Lord touch our hearts in this way, and may you be blessed on this Christmas day, and may you be blessed particularly in the midst of your family gatherings or what you've planned. May the Lord offer that opportunity to think further about our worship services today and particularly these two understated but beautiful stories about the birth of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, again Lord, we are we are just humbled. We are humbled by by the fact that you, you loved us and you loved this world so much that you were willing to give up your son to come down to this earth to save us from our sins. So that in being forgiven and having the power of sin broken in our lives, we might enter into a new life and above all eternal life. And again, Lord Jesus, we thank you for humbling yourself as the eternal Son of God and taking on human flesh once again to draw us to yourself. Father, we confess in this prayer, that's the real reason for the season. It is. And we're grateful for that. And thank you for revealing that to us. And we pray, O Lord, in light of this passage, as a response in our part, Lord, help us to open up our hearts further to receive, O Lord, the blessings of Jesus, and in response also to walk in greater faith and obedience and joy, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.